to, to sing collectively and to sit under the preaching of your word. I want to pray for those who are unable to be with us in this moment. I want to pray that uh, you will bring them back into our, our fellowship together soon. Lord, we pray for an end to this pandemic. Lord, we ask that even as we continue through this trial, that we will do so in a way that honors you in a, in a faithful, Christ-like um, just ever taking advantage of every moment to give a hope for the reason that was within us. Lord, today, as we open your word, help us to take what we hear, believe it, and apply it to our life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As you do, uh, last week, we began to, to look at and examine what it means to, to have a, a new life in Christ and, and how there's two groups of people in the world, those who St. Augustine described or illustrated as being a part of the city of God and those who he described as being a part of the city of man, those who are now in Christ and those who are not, those who desire to, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and those who don't, those who have experienced the Spirit's work of regeneration, they're, they're born again, they're a new creation, and those who are not, those who are presently being sanctified, conformed into the image of Christ, and those who are not. There's no in-between. There's either you're a part of the city of God or you're a part of the city of man. You're, you're, you're a citizen of one of the two. Again, there's no neutrality. And so as we looked last week, the, the, with the new birth, that is those who belong to the city of God, with that comes a new mind, a new way of thinking as we encounter um, the, the city of man. It's counter to the city of man meaning those who are in Christ now see and think about the world differently than we once did, which subsequently determines how we live and engage within the world that we are living. We are, as verse 22 says, and it's not up on the screen, but as verse 22 says, to put off the old self, which belongs to our, our former manner of life. That's what we're to do. Put off the old, put on the new, and do what? Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That is, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the question we're left with here, after the instruction to, to put off the old and now put on the new, is how? How do we do this? Because as we learned last week, it, it doesn't just happen. No one comes to faith in Christ and then immediately has it all figured out. No one comes to faith in Christ and automatically begins to live a perfectly holy life. Any more than a couch potato just hops up off the couch and runs a, a marathon. It doesn't work that way. But the desire is there. The desire to, to follow Christ as we now desire to, to want to grow in Christ-likeness. 
We want to, to live our lives in a holy and pleasing way, blameless way. It's pleasing to the Lord. And like we, we looked at last week, desire for this to happen is absolutely essential. But having desire can still leave you like being like, okay, I have this desire, but what do I do? Like, how do I go about doing this? Like someone like wanting to go from the couch to a 5K, right? Like, I, I, I want to do this. How, how do I do it? Well, desire has to be there first. So what next? Then a daily progression that starts small and intentionally builds up to reach your desired goal. Same with growing in Christ's likeness. Desire is there. Great. Praise the Lord for that desire. It's a gift from the Lord. Now what? First things first, again, as we looked at last week, join a healthy local church that is committed to faithfully teaching the scriptures. Not one that is just using the scriptures to say what they want to say, but one is faithfully committed to the scriptures and then commit to sit under the teaching of that church week after week. But as we learned last week, one meal a week isn't enough to sustain you, is it? No. So what else do we need? Well, in no order of importance, but we'll take three different things. One, take advantage of discipleship classes that are offered within the church. David's teaching one now. I'm going to begin teaching one, uh, a four-week class on April uh, 13th. Take advantage of such classes. It's a perfect opportunity not only to grow in knowledge and understanding, but also in biblical community, learning and living together. We're not learning in isolation. We're, we're learning this together. Two, make a plan to read and study the Bible. You don't know where to start? Ask for help. Even make time to read and study the Bible, discuss what you're learning with one another, like get together over, over Zoom or in person, around a fire pit, whatever it may be, and talk about what you're learning in the text. Read the text together. Have questions? Ask. Seek answers to your questions. Three, read good books that will help you understand the scriptures and how to study the Bible. David included a couple recommendations in this past week's newsletter. We're happy to provide more <laughs> with them. These are all areas to get you started in knowing how to think biblically, which is rooted in understanding God's word. But plain and simple, living a holy life starts with the renewing of our minds which cannot happen apart from intentional time studying and learning God's word. Taking what we learn and then applying it to our life. Remember Paul's charge in verse 17? You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And it's God's word that tells us how to think and then subsequently how, how we're to walk according to right biblical thinking. That's what we're looking at today. So picking up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, considering everything that we just looked at, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of, of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Such applicable text for the Christian life. So much here. Paul providing an, an instruction manual to us for, for growing in Christ's likeness, to showing us like this is how we're supposed to live. And he does so in a very interesting way, if you notice. First, by giving an old self-action or mindset that we're to leave behind. And then he comes along and he gives a new self-action or mindset that we're to replace the old with. And then he provides a theological motivation as to why. So think about when Leslie and I got married and she'd look at my wardrobe. She's like, that, that shirt needs to go. Like a lot of these shirts need to go. And I'm like, but I love that shirt. Like, I, 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 what's wrong with that shirt? I think that shirt looks good. Like, she's like, yeah, that's hideous. Thank you for your honesty, <laughs> you know, with this. And then every Christmas and birthday, I noticed something. Her and her mom would just give me a shirt or two every Christmas, every birthday. You know, parents go on a vacation down to Destin and be around the outlets, and I would just so happen to come home with some new shirts. And I'd try them on, and I'd, eh, eh. And she's like, oh, it looks so good on you. I'm like, okay. Kind of, I like hearing that, and I like being told that it looks good on me. And what's my now motivation to wear these new shirts? My wife thinks I look good in them. So I'm good enough for me. I really don't care what the world thinks. <laughs> like, I care what she thinks. And so if she thinks I look good in them, I'm going to wear the shirt. You know what? Eventually, they just became my style. Like it or not. I am who I am dress-wise because my wife has made me who I am today. Out with the old and in with the new. That's what we have within our text today. It's a pattern. It's a pattern of old self-action, new self-action, theological motivation. That's the pattern that we see taking place over and over again within the text. You got something that's old, it's got to go. Got the new, this is what's going to replace it. And then we got like, why? The theological, theological motivation as to why. Paul explaining and describing the actions we're able to, to, to take and to live how God would have us to live. We're to be imitators of God. It all starts, if you notice, with how we speak. Actually, with what we speak. We're going to get to the how in just a moment. But number one, Christians speak the truth. And we speak the truth in the midst of a culture of untruth. 
It's verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another, one of another. So first things first, let's look at the pattern. What's the old self-action or mindset? Falsehood. That's what we see in the text is the old self, to, to which we're to do what with? Put it away. We're to put away falsehood. Actually, it says, if you notice the text, having put away falsehood. Having being a past tense, right? Meaning putting away falsehood is something we've already done. And now the question then is, how is it that it's something that we've already done? Here's how. By the, the fact we are in Christ, it means that we've embraced Jesus, who is the source of all truth. In the verse 21, the truth is in Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus himself telling us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thus, by account of our new nature, we're defined as a people of truth. We are in Christ who is truth, and we ourselves are truth, which stands in stark contrast to the father of lies, the devil who we no longer follow. So old self has put away, put away falsehood. And this naturally brings us to the new self-action or mindset that we're replacing that falsehood with. So having put away falsehood, Paul says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Which seems simple enough, right? Like speak truth, don't, don't lie, speak the truth. Put away falsehood, old self, speak truth, new self. Seems simple enough, but why is speaking truth so important to the Christian life? Well, that's the question that brings us to the theological motivation, which Paul tells us at the end of this verse, it says, for we are members one of another. See, the, the neighbors Paul speaks of here can naturally be understood as all people, like all of those around us, everybody that we encounter. And we are to be truthful in our dealings with all people. But speaking the truth is also essential for establishing and maintaining unity within the body, the church. See, see, the words we speak have an effect on the whole body, whether it's words that we speak to one another or the words that we are speaking to the world. They affect all of us together. The truthfulness of what we say matters. Why? Because untruth divides. Falsehoods, they harm. They harm our witness in unity, creating disunity, but they also harm our witness and our ability to effectively share the gospel. So before we speak, before we post, we need to honestly ask, is this true? Is it true? If we're not certain that it is true, then don't post it, don't speak it. Now we'll return to what we speak in, in a moment. But number two, Christians are to be angry, but not sin. 
I noticed I, I like how some of your heads just popped up when I said Christians are to be angry. <laughs> it was like a, a reflex. Like, what? <laughs> like, it, you're, you're listening. You're following along. Because in hearing that, like, what does this mean? Like, Christians are to be angry. Being told in verse 26, be angry, yet do not sin. Seems kind of odd to be told to be angry as a Christian. That's probably because we typically associate anger with unrighteousness, fits of anger, abuse, sinful actions, feelings of anger. We think of anger that, that leads to things like, like murder and jealousy and envy and strife, any number of other sins, all things that describe the old self of which we're to put away. But remember the charge is for us to be angry and do not sin. This is what's to describe the new self. The anger spoken of here being that of a, a righteous anger. Being righteously angry about the things that anger God. Now you may not like the idea about hearing of God's anger. Kind of like, oh, I, don't, I don't want to talk about God's anger. Let's just talk about God's love. We may not like to talk about God's anger, but it doesn't change the fact that your sin, my sin, our sin angers God. And because it angers God, it should anger us as well. In Mark 1, we, we see Jesus, God in the flesh, express righteous anger when he turned over the tables in the temple. People turning the house of prayer into a marketplace. And later in Mark chapter 3, when the religious leaders questioned him about healing on the Sabbath, we're told that, that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. With each occurrence, Jesus seeing the intent of God's law, God's heart being forsaken, which deserves a righteous indignation. It's why God destroyed the world by flood. It's why he sent his son to the cross. Because God hates sin. It has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with justly. Friends, God never turns a blind eye or an indifferent eye towards sin. He doesn't just pass over it, ignoring it. He hates it. And so must we. Any violation of God's law should anger us just as it angers God. The problem comes when that which angers God doesn't anger us, which is all too common today. A developed callousness towards sin, whether it's our sin or the sin we've seen being carried out all around us, there's a callousness that is there. There's something not right, friends, when we're okay watching and doing and saying and listening to that which angers God. It's like a frog in a pot. We're all familiar with that illustration, a frog in a boiling pot, but before it's boiling, it just slowly gets turned up, laying there comfortable and unwilling to get out of what will eventually kill him if he doesn't get out. That's why all Christians must possess an ever-growing awareness of and a righteous anger towards the things that anger God. 
causes us then to get out of the boiling pot, step out of the situation. Friends, I ask, can this be said of you? In that, are, are you aware of what angers God? Is your mind growing in this understanding? And then is what angers God angering you? Now, one more question. Is it possible to possess a righteous anger and still sin? Think about that for a moment. Is it possible to possess a righteous anger to, to anger, be angry over the things that God is angry over and still sin? Yes. And that's why what Paul is trying to help us avoid here. See, the, the theological motivation behind be angry and do not sin is so that we don't give any opportunity to the, the devil to grab a foothold in our life. See, what Paul is doing here is he, is he appears to be echoing a theme from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, as he quotes, be angry and do not sin. This psalm being where King David in his distress cries out saying, be angry and do not sin. That's the quotation. But he's also feeding off the theme here as David continues in that psalm, Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So I picture David crying out to the Lord in his distress over what he's anxiously angry about. You ever done that? Maybe, maybe just laying there in bed pondering or stewing over what, what you're angry about. Again, this may be something that's righteously angry about. It, it's something that you have every right to be angry over. But the longer you're sitting there, you're stewing on it more and more and more. I think we've all done that one way or another. But what happens the longer that we, we lay there stewing? Our, our righteous anger has a way of slowly turning to unrighteous anger turns into sin, all the ways that we can make it better, the things that we want to do to fix it. We give the devil an opportunity. We give him a foothold, and he runs with it. Can't do that. That's why Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. I Meaning the longer we let our anger linger, the greater chance it has to turn to sin over time. David's solution in Psalm 4 is to offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now, does that mean that we need to go out and slaughter a lamb? <laughs> no. But it, it does mean it's time to trust in the Lamb of God who has already been slain to satisfy the righteous anger of God for the sins of everyone who believes. It's time to trust in the Lord. To trust in the Lord that, that all that angers him will one day be dealt with justly once and for all. This is the, the justice that we long for and have at the same time we've been saved from receiving if we are in Christ. 
So yeah, when we see acts of injustice, when we see acts of sin today, we should experience a righteous anger. That's not right. Flee from it. We must act where we have the ability to act and address things that we have the ability to address, but we must not sin. I hear a lot of people talking about grace these days who show no signs of grace with their tongue. We must speak and act gracefully even with hard truths. Thinking about this Sometimes, and I've used the illustration of, of, of a child playing in the street and say, get out of the street. It's a loving act, right? Oncoming truck. But sometimes maybe the approach of a cancer patient is better. Walk into a room and say, I have bad news. You have cancer. And if it's not treated, it is going to be terminal. But I have good news. Here's the treatment plan. Here's Christ. We're still telling you you're going to die. We still want to get your attention, but is there a loving way that we can speak truth in love and not be angry over sin in an unrighteous or our, our sin lead to unrighteous anger? Number three, Christians work, we don't steal. Seems pretty obvious, right? We work, we don't steal. Old self, thief. That is taking what belongs to God and keeping it or using it for our selfish purposes of which we're all guilty. This is what we're to no longer do. Wrestling with whether or not this applies to you, I'd encourage you to find one of our sermons in the Ten Commandments dealing with this. Do not steal It'll point out very clearly how we are all guilty of breaking this commandment. But the new self does what? Doing honest work with our hands. Don't be a thief. Do what? Do honest work. No longer stealing, but honestly working. Why? Other than the obvious. What's the theological motivation behind this? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So in one sense, this is a reminder of, of our call to work that goes all the way back to the garden. Work serving as a gift from God. It's a, it's a God-given means of putting food on the table and clothes on our backs. 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, telling us if anyone isn't willing to work, he shouldn't eat. Willing being the key word. Not talking about those who literally can't work, but those who are unwilling to work. I think of Cousin Eddie from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Like, I'm not trying to advocate a movie, I'll to be honest, I'm a fan. But old Cousin Yeti, Yeti, Cousin Eddie out of work for eight years. Not because he couldn't work, because he's holding out for a job in upper management. That's being a thief. The author of Proverbs tells us the, the one who works his land will have plenty of food. But whoever chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. No, it, it may not be your dream job. You may hate it. I've been there. But if you want to eat, you work. 
But the purpose of honest work doesn't stop with putting food on the table, does it? Not for Christians. Because again, what's the theological motivation behind working? So that that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. It's a reminder that any income we've been given is a gift of God's grace and is to be used to help those in, in need. By our new nature, we, we become like Zacchaeus. Not the old Zacchaeus, but the new Zacchaeus. Remember that wee little man who climbed up in a tree? <laughs> Maybe you don't remember the song. Hopefully you remember the, 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 the passage in the Bible of this tax collector who prior to knowing Jesus lined his pockets as, as he stole from people by overtaxing them. But after Jesus came to his house one day, entered into his life, Zacchaeus believed the new self, Zacchaeus, was a generous giver to those in need. A heart full of repentance and desire to, to give. You know who Zacchaeus became like with his new life? Jesus. He became like the one who redeemed him. And so must we. Number four, Christians let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. Paul, once again, returning to our speech here, starting with a call to speak the truth. And then here in verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So the old self-action equals corrupting talk. You know, the Greek word here for corrupting is that of a foul. It's used in the New Testament to refer to rotten fruit or rotten fish. This is talk that does nothing to nourish the body. It only makes you sick. So things like slander and gossip, lies, inappropriate and crude jokes, disparaging comments, coarse language, it all hurts the body. How are we to speak instead? The new self speaks only in such ways that are good for building up as fits the occasion. So by speaking helpful words, encouraging words, even challenging words, Again, words that build up as fits the occasion. So these words may be a a sincere compliment, a passing word of encouragement, or they may be a, a loving rebuke, key word being loving. Because the aim in every conversation we have should be to build up, not to tear down to build unity and maturity, not division and disdain. Why? What's the theological motivation behind this? That it may give grace to those who who hear. That our words may give grace to those who hear, which means what? It means when we speak to and with one another, our words are to be a demonstration of the grace of God. Could even add in when we speak about one another. Our words are to be a demonstration of the grace of God. We are to speak words that are true, yes, but speak them in such a way that we are intentional to build up. So easy to level a, a crushing blow. But rather, may our words be gracious and seasoned with life preserving salt. 
Again, may, we, may our words and our actions be like of Christ. Number five, Christians must not grieve the Holy Spirit, which implies it is possible for Christians to grieve the Holy Spirit, something that we've all done, whether we realize it or not. We must strive not to do, but we have done it. As verse 30 tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This tying everything that we've looked at previous together in one big culminating theological motivation. You're not going to do these things. Why? Here, we put off the old self and we put on the new so that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Just think back to chapter one and into chapter two with me for a moment. Such rich theological truths about the the origin of our, our salvation. How it's possible for, for sinners to be called children of God. Friends, if, if you don't ponder the reality of the miracle of which salvation is, like not just from time to time, but daily, like you're, you're missing out of glorious mental worship that leaves the heart to worship. Like to sit and realize how undeserving and impossible it is to bring ourselves to faith in Christ. Now just to think about how we can be called children of God, chosen to be holy and blameless, predestined for adoption, redeemed through the blood of Christ. Sins forgiven. Sins that anger God have been forgiven through the blood of Christ. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We who are in Christ now being the the holy temple in the Lord in which God himself dwells by his spirit. He dwells within us. Therefore, things like speaking untruths and unrighteous anger, stealing and corrupt talk, these things all grieve the spirit who dwells within us as they're all identifiers of the old self and not who we now are in Christ. Thus, when we act in these ways and think in these ways, it grieves the Holy Spirit We're acting counter to who we now are in Christ. That's an important question each uh, one of us should ask of ourselves. Maybe ask of those around us, even as hard as it may be, to, to answer for us. But is the Holy Spirit grieved by me? Or is he rejoicing over me? Continually asking, will what I'm about to say or do please the Spirit or grieve the Spirit? Paul brings this section to a summary in verses 31 and 32 as he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What Paul is charging here is that we who are in Christ are to put off the marks of the world and put on the marks of Christ, who in his loving kindness saved us 
from the bitterness of sin and from the wrath of God. Reminder also, he, he didn't just save us from the penalty of the sin, but from the life of sin. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is the life we are to live as Christians, holy and blameless, off with the old, on with the new. And notice everything that we've looked at, it's done in community. It's not done in isolation. You speak to others. You would steal or generously give to others. All of these things are done in the life of the body. This is what life in the body of Christ looks like. So simple question, is this what describes the desire of your heart and the actions of your life? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Spirit's continued work in the life of everyone who believes. Give us strength today to put off the old self and continually put on the new. Let our wardrobe be that which honors you and brings you great delight. Forgive us, O oh Lord, when we reach for what, which, that which is old. And give us the strength through your spirit to remove these things completely from our life, no matter how painful and uncomfortable it, it may be. May we embrace Christ more and more. May we embrace Christ and his righteousness that we now possess. May this be what marks us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and continue in worship. Mm -hmm.